Well, Merry Christmas to you and yours from all of us at Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition for 30 Christmases. I'm Gary D., producer of the show, and this is the Arizona Hour. This is the hour where we talk about people, places, and things, and it's brought to you by our friends at Sanderson Ford. Man, the sole purpose of this hour is to get you out and about to enjoy this beautiful state. There are so many things to see. Rosie knows every square inch of the state. I've just barely scratched the surface. Now, we have the Arizona Staycation that you can register for at rosieonthehouse.com. So we thought we'd look back at some of the places we sent people to for the Arizona Staycation and places that you may not know about. I, I tell you, I didn't know about Ramsey Canyon, but Rosie and Jennifer sure did. And we talked with Miss Shirlene at Ramsey Canyon Inn to tell us what makes Ramsey Canyon so special. Well, Miss Shirlene, we're talking about the number one reason Ramsey Canyon is known throughout the world, and it's the birding. Correct. And 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 bird watching is one of those activities that I love doing with my grandchildren. It forces us to get outside, geocaching, hiking, bird watching, exploring. Talk a little bit about what Ramsey Canyon is known for specifically. Well, specifically, it's known for its hummingbirds. Uh, we're in the migration path of the birds that that go to Mexico and South America in the winter, and then they come up to uh, the United States in the summer, and they go as far as Alaska, where they nest and raise their babies, and then in the winter they go back down to Mexico again. So we're right at that migration path, and... We have a year-round stream, so there's always water here. It's the perfect place for birds to go through. I I heard a story from recreational boaters down in the Gulf that they actually hang the hummingbird feeders. feeders off their yachts and boats by the hundreds, and that as these migrating waves come through, they can literally, the boat could be enveloped with migrating hummingbirds. Well, that's true, and, and, and I'll tell you, there is a, a hummingbird that's east of the Mississippi, the ruby-throated hummingbird, and every year it mi- migrates across the Gulf of Mexico. That's 500 or 600 miles of open water. That's non- a nonstop flight for a little hummingbird. That's, a, that's wings that are this big. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Holy cow. They start out in Florida, they increase their body weight by 30%, and then they just take off, and they, they love finding the boats along the way. Golly. So how many, how many hummingbirds could someone see at Ramsey Canyon? The fall migration is the best migration, and that is July, August, September. And at that time, they seem to come to Ramsey Canyon, and then they stay here until it gets cold, and then they go ahead and go down south. When they're coming back in spring, they'll start coming in March and April and May, but they're on their way to wherever they're going to go nest, so they don't hang out here so much. We have about eight species that that actually do nest here, but the rest of them sort of go away. But in, in August, September, you should be able to see 12 to 14 species of hummingbirds in Ramsey Canyon at my feeder's. Uh, I probably have the best place in the canyon to get the best variety of hummingbird feeders. I know I have the best place in the canyon. I, I, I guess I wasn't I wasn't aware that there were fourteen or fifteen different types of hummingbirds. I've got my little Audubon book, and I think there's about eight or nine or ten in there. How, how many varieties of hummingbirds are there? 
Well, if you go to South America, there's over 300. So we're a drop in the bucket. Wow. Sherlyn, can you identify all 14 just by looking? Yes, I can. I was really lucky when I opened the bed and breakfast. I got to be involved in the hummingbird banding project here at my bed and breakfast. And so I got a really good education on hummingbirds. Is that mostly a color differentiation when you're looking? No, it's it's color, it's shape, it's uh, the length of the bill, it's uh, a lot of different things. Oh, man, that's fantastic. Ramsey Canyon, the hummingbird capital of the United States. Correct. Now, is, where else and, could I go in the United States to see 10 or 12 or 13 or 14 of the different hummingbirds? If you went to Texas, you might get... 10, 12, I'm oh. not sure. Uh, California, maybe four or five. But definitely southern Arizona, the, the corridor here is, is definitely has the most hummingbirds at one time. Well, it looks like in perusing your website here, the rooms of the inn are named after the different species of the hummingbirds. Yes, they are. Well, you've got about nine more rooms to build, don't you? <laughs> I do. <laughs> is is the, how many how many rooms do you have? How many guests can you accommodate? Well, in the bed and breakfast, I have six rooms, all with private baths. And then across the creek, I have a little duplex that has two one bedroom housekeeping suites. We don't take children in the bed and breakfast, but we have we allow children out in the suites, and therefore people who. They have a full kitchen, living room, bedroom, bathroom, and people who want to stay for a little longer or want a more private experience in the canyon will like to stay out there and cook their own meals. We don't serve breakfast to our sweet guests, but they get the pie every day, just like all of the other guests do. You wouldn't need anything else. <laughs> she, she's won over 100 ribbons on her pie. Yeah, she calls that? it, you get the pie. You well, the over pie. 100 blue ribbons she's won with her pies. Miss Shirlene DeSantis, owner of Ramsey Canyon Inn, down in beautiful Ramsey Canyon. You just get to Sierra Vista. You head a little bit south. Do you see the sign that takes you right into Ramsey Canyon? You drive up there until the road dead ends, and that's her house. She's right there. It's absolutely a beautiful setting. Hummingbird capital of the world. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other birds. I mean, visitors from around the world come here just to see certain birds. Yes, they do. There's certain birds that that are are seen here that aren't seen anywhere else. Need to correct you that this is not the hummingbird capital of the world, just the United States. You are absolutely right. You had mentioned South America is the capital of the world, right? Yes. Okay, all right. Yeah, they have 300 and we have 15. But yeah, that's, that's right. It's impressive <laughs> for the United right. States. So birders um, can take their life lists. Life lists are lists that bird watchers compile, and they score that I've registered, I've seen this bird, and they record the date and where they were. And what a life list. You, you can get some people that are pretty aggressive about completing that life list i have had several people we had a an aztec thrush which was a rare bird for for the united states up up here in our canyon and i saw people actually fly out from back east rent a car in tucson drive up look at the bird get in their car and go back home just because they needed that bird on their list how does the word get out that it's there 
Yeah, there's there's a website. Uh, anybody uh, sees a rare bird, they post it on that website, and that's anywhere in the United States. And so people can always daily check that website and see what birds are there. And, you know, climate change causes different birds to come in. Uh, uh, storms can blow birds in from that normally wouldn't be here. A lot of different things can cause unusual birds to be here. And we've noticed in the last few years with uh, the weather climate change that more, more and more rare birds are moving up into southern Arizona from Mexico. Have you kept track of how many different types of birds have been registered in the canyon? Can no, I see, I haven't. But can I see 50? Over, can I see 50 different kinds? Over kind? 300. Over 300. Over 300 different kind of birds right there in Ramsey Canyon. Right, right, right in uh, Ramsey Canyon or the, or the or this whole area here, the whole valley area. Uh, well over 300 birds have been have been recorded. If if I wanted to become better, and I think on our next trip down, I, could you set me up with with a real trained eye that could take me to my next level in birding? Oh, absolutely. We have uh, several guides in the area. That's all they do. Uh, year around and if you wanted the maximum number of birds to add to your list or just to see the maximum number of birds you would definitely want to hire a guide because they know exactly where these birds are what tree they're hanging out in uh, what dirt road they're down they know they know because they all keep a record of where where they see things and Ramsey Canyon has elegant trogans and that's one of our are, are rare birds in the United States that is known to be in Ramsey Canyon, and people come from all over to see that. Red-faced warbler has been showing up, and that's kind of a rare a rare bird in this, this area. In that corner of the state, where would you send somebody that wanted to see outside Ramsey Canyon? Oh, there's so much to see. A tombstone and Bisbee are two really neat little historic towns that have just many, many things going on, it's particularly Bisbee. Bisbee has some great restaurants and some some nice uh, bands in the evening to listen to good music. And uh, if for people who are interested in history, the Fort Huachuca has an amazing museum that goes all the way back to the Calvary days and up to the high-tech uh, communications that it is known for now, and and um, so so a civilian can access the base in the, the museum's actually on the base on the post. Yes, it is. So you've got Fort Huachuca on your list. You've got Bisbee on your list. You've got Tombstone on your list. Isn't Karstner Cavern just twenty or thirty minutes away? Yes, that's not far at all, and that's amazing. Everybody needs to see that. That's that, a living cavern. Charlene DeSantis, owner of Ramsey Canyon Inn, we're doing this to highlight the entire area in and about and around Sierra Vista. Thank you very much. Congratulations on all your success at Ramsey Canyon Inn. It was nice speaking with you, Rosie. And beside all the birds and the pie, there's lots of hiking trails throughout Ramsey Canyon, so bring those hiking shoes and bring a camera, too. It's really pretty. RamseyCanyonInn.com if you'd like to find out more. That's R-A-M. S-E-Y. It's located near Sierra Vista in the southeastern part of the state. This is the Arizona Hour. People, places, and things we visited through the Arizona staycation this past year. Where are we off to next?
Stick around and find out. It's Rosie on the House, the Arizona Hour, brought to you by Sanderson Ford. And we're looking back at the people, places, and things as it related to the Arizona staycation this past year. And if you've gone up I-17, you've seen the signs to see Montezuma's Castle, Montezuma's Well, and Tuzigoot National Monument. And it's a sight to see. Laura Varen Burkhart, she's a park ranger with the Montezuma Castle and Tuzigoot National Monument. Laura, thanks a million for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Excited oh. to be here. Well, I have to tell you, you kind of monitor two of my favorite little stops in Arizona. And I think it's, you know, Montezuma Castle is so easy to get to. And I just had an employee tell me who's been in the state like 20 plus years. He's driven by it a thousand times and never pulled in. So common when people <laughs> come in. Uh, we get We obviously get visitors from all over the world, but visitors from Arizona, they say, I've driven past this brown sign I can't tell you how many times, and I finally had the time to stop in, and they're always so Amazed, glad they did. Right? Yeah, yeah. You can see how they use the limestone cliff as an advantage, as a stronghold for yeah. basing their their uh, their homes. Yeah. They would they would build basically up against this cliff. It, it had so many advantages. It was your anchor point. It was your thermal mass. Tell us a little bit about the culture, pre-Columbian Sanagua culture. The culture that occupied central Arizona, uh, we call the Southern Sanawa, based on the materials that were found during the study, uh, during the excavation of these sites, they really distinguished themselves far apart from the Mogollon culture, from uh, the ancestral Puebloan culture, which many people are familiar with, sites like Mesa Verde. Sure. That'd be the ancestral Puebloan culture. And all these cultures existed pretty much during the same time period, but they had uh, distinguish, uh, distinguishing materials, uh, certain ways of making pottery, basketry, jewelry, clothing. But they all had uh, an economic relationship with each other. These trade routes would extend as far west as the Pacific Ocean and as far south as central Mexico. You, you're at the Montezuma Castle. Mm -hmm. You also spend some time at the well. Correct. Okay. It's right. a sinkhole. Uh, the water uh, in that, that sinkhole is just so unique. So the bottom, and, and this is where it, it could be a surprise, but the, the bottom is really a false bottom. It's this cloud of suspended fine silt. How deep is it to that, to that artificial bottom? It's uh, 45 feet, okay. I think. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, we're actually not sure how deep the the cracks in the rocks go. Uh, the aquifer is below it. That's where all the spring water comes out of. But we're not quite sure how deep that uh, those cracks go down. We can't visibly see the bottom, uh, so it still kind of puzzles hydrologists and geologists. So all the water that pumps into the well, it's a million and a half gallons a day that pumps into the well and consequently leaks out of the well. It leaks through the side of the mound and is caught in a prehistoric irrigation system. And that water is channeled to a field. And that field, we believe, was a giant agricultural field for this culture. Uh, and it's evident they wouldn't have spent all that work oh. and time maintaining a irrigation canal if it wasn't used for something important like like food. Well, that's a very yeah. significant connection. I mean, there were thousands of people that inhabited this area. 
if you were to overlay a trade route map from this time period, overlay it with our interstates and highways that are in Arizona today, <laughs> it is the same exact routes. I-40, I-17, I-10, Highway 60, it's the same exact routes that they were traveling 800, 900 years ago. Tuzi Goot. Both structures are built with stone and mortar, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a heck of a hod carrier's job to get mortar up to the top of the castle. But now the castle built in the recess of a limestone, limestone sheer cliff. Mm-hmm. So you have the anchor points and you have the thermal mass. And you have so many advantages. And then like just, I don't know, what is it, 15 miles down the road at Tuzigut? They built on top of a little knoll. Two very opposite, same culture, same construction type. Yeah, it's the it's the same valley, and they had very similar resources, uh, but their choices, we believe, were dictated by the topography of the land. At Montezuma Castle, uh, Beaver Creek, that runs right by the park, did a really great job of carving these sheer cliffs, and uh, luckily some south-facing cliffs, and that we we believe that that was uh, a, a good advantage because in the in the winter the oh. sun is shining oh. on that structure all day, and then uh, I'm sure as as you know as living in Phoenix, at night your house does not automatically cool down. That heat radiates off your walls, and so Tuzigoot, uh they they had the Verde River, which is the largest river that runs through that valley, uh, so they wanted to be near it. Uh, the hill uh, takes them out of the flood zone. Uh, and there's several pueblos in on the west side of the valley that are up on top of hilltops like that. And that advantage of not being in a cliffside but being on top of a hill is you have what we call a line of sight living. So you can have a visual communication network with your neighbors because everybody lives next to the fresh water source but up on a hill above the tree line. So you can actually visually communicate um, it could have been something like smoke signals. It could have been something shiny like volcanic glass. It could have been something like um, they, they were really great at weaving cotton and making uh, making uh, fabrics. So it could have been something like that, that they were visually communicating with each other. Fantastic. Laura Baron Burkhart, park ranger at Montezuma Castle, Montezuma Well, and Tuzigut. It's Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning happy place. Three days away from Christmas, a lot of smiling faces, especially for the visitors coming into our state that are coming from the northern part of the country, where there's about seven or 800 feet of snow. And they get over here and it's like, hey, this ain't too bad. And some of them end up staying here. And I can't blame you. It's a beautiful state. And that's why in this hour, we do the Arizona Hour. It's brought to you by Sanderson Ford. We talk about the people and places around the state. And we're just looking back this past year at the people and places uh, we went to uh, connected with our Arizona staycation that you can register to win at rosieonthehouse.com. We send folks to Flagstaff, Snowflake, Heber Overgard, Greer. Oh, it's like Colorado and Arizona. It's a beautiful place. Oh, yes, Sedona. We can't forget Sedona. But near Sedona is a little bitty mining town that has a incredible history of mining and became a ghost town and is now one of those little places that once you go, you can't wait to go back again and again. 
and I'm talking about Jerome, Arizona. We had a chance to talk with Vice Mayor Jay Kinsella, who moved there in the 70s to visit family, and he never left. He loves it that much. And if his last name sounds familiar, well, he'll tell you more about that. Yeah, Jerome has uh, just a wealth of history, and you know, I can do what I can to explain it real quick. Like, it, you know, established in 1876 as a mining community, uh, Tent City, and from there, unfortunately, the Tent City burned. Um, and uh, in 1899, uh, it, uh, the downtown area burned again uh, when it was a wood city. And now if you come to Jerome, the main business district and everything is all concrete or brick or rock foundations and uh, um, walls and things like that. Because in 1899, it became a actually an incorporated town um, with the mayor and council and things like that. And they didn't want their uh, their assets to burn again. So uh, you had to build the bars and 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 restaurants and and the uh, lodging areas on a lot of brick or the non-burnable type items and uh, uh, Jerome a lot of people don't know but Jerome was the largest producer of copper in the world from the late 1800s to about 1917. Um, Jerome encompasses about one square mile underneath that one square mile is about 156 miles of um, documented tunnels and shafts um, can you tour town, those? At one one time was uh, biding to be the state capital or the territorial capital, and they actually took Prescott over Jerome. So, um, and like you had said, uh, uh, we were a burnt, uh, booming mining town um, up until about the 1950s. 1950s uh, coincides with the end of the Korean War. Um, there wasn't the demand for copper anymore, um, and at the time, Phelps Dodge um, um, had uh, other operations in Arizona, so they basically shut down the town. And uh, uh, who I'm employed by, the Jerome Historical Society, actually got established in 1953 um, because a mining company was going to come through and level the town. And uh, um, the original band of um, board members that established the um, the Jerome Historical Society as a recognized Arizona non-for-profit organization um, actually saved the town. Um, they slowly acquired uh, different properties on Main Street. Um, at one time, um, we owned about 18 of the buildings on Main Street. Now we're down to about 11. Um, all the parking that you see in Jerome and, and uh, the parks and all that stuff were all owned by the history. Uh, historical society and as the interest in Jerome grew um, which was the board's vision um, of the historical society when they began acquiring the land in, in 53 and the buildings and things their, their, their thought was at some time possibly somebody's going to want to come to Jerome for the history and uh, they'd be pleasantly surprised because last year we had 1.45 million people visit a town of wow. 444 residents, um, which is pretty significant. Uh, we're the third largest tourism draw um, in northern Arizona. Jay, this is Gary, uh, the producer. I I'll say this about yes. Jerome. The first time I went there, I, I was sold. Um, I mean, when you're coming down 89A or going up the hill, you see the town and people yeah. go, Wow. Every friend that has come through here, I bring them to Jerome. When they come back, what's the first thing they want to see? Grand Canyon? No, they want to go back to Jerome. They love that place. And the history is yeah, amazing. You know, it's, it, 
yeah, it's it's the history, it's the charm, it's the quaintness. You know, we don't have any um, 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 franchises or anything in Jerome, uh, but we have great coffee shops. And recently, in the last five years, um, wine tasting. Um, there were some uh, people that got together and uh, started acquiring some land in the Verde Valley and uh, started growing grapes and working with Cochise County, uh, making a blend of Verde Valley grapes along with Cochise County grapes. And so now we have wine tasting. Um, and so that brings a different clientele into town and, and things like that. And I can vouch for the wine, too. It's excellent. Caduceus and... Uh, yes, yeah, Jerome Winery. Uh, the other one is uh, Passion Wine Cellars and now Venezona uh, Wines, which is uh, um, also wine tasting, but they kind of uh, um, have varieties. Instead of just coming from uh, one vineyard, they kind of um, have various different vineyards that they, they actually uh, um, represent and things, so... And, of course, you can't go to Jerome without checking out the Grand Hotel. It was actually the first of uh, two places that we stayed on our honeymoon. And it's uh-huh. got the premier view of the entire Verde Valley. And I, I would never go to that hotel and not get an eastern-facing room with with the balcony to just sit there and and watch the valley come alive as the sun comes up. Yeah, it's it, it, it's beautiful, and it, you know the 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 building itself, the history on that was it was the last of the hospitals out of uh, the four um, hospitals that were in Jerome during the heyday. And uh, I remember moving to Jerome, and it sat empty. Um, you know, the thing was is I remember back in the late seventies and early eighties, um, if you're with a fraternity or going to NAU, it was almost like a dare on the weekend to hang out um, and spend the weekend in the, in the Jerome uh, um, hospital and things like that. So, and then over a period of time, um, um, my family got involved with it um, and brought it back to life. And um, it's the Jerome Grand Hotel. Um, and it also has the Asylum Restaurant, which is a you know, great restaurant to eat at too. And there's a property that recently went for sale. It was originally built as barracks for the miners. Uh, but it's it's has since turned into quite a premier property. Yes, uh, what you're referring to is the uh, um, historically it's uh, named the Little Daisy Hotel, and the Little Daisy was part of the mining operation um, on the lower half of Jerome. Um, the, what you're referring to is a, a building that sat empty for many many years, uh, concrete structure. Um, a family came in, um, and a husband and wife came in and uh, refurbished the building. Um, if you come to Jerome, it's a building that looks like it's unfinished with uh, no roof on it and uh, arches and a couple of Arizona um, cypress out in front. And uh, I actually saw a lot of the construction being done and through the phases and, and uh, upon its completion. And it's it's absolutely beautiful. It is a... Uh, um, it, 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 uh, the windows and uh, the attention to detail historically, um, I do believe it has um, nine uh, nine bedroom, um, six bath or something, um, and then also the views from there are absolutely spectacular. It was originally the you, there was twelve and twelve. You'd work twelve hours. You'd have twelve off. Can you imagine being in the yeah, mine twelve that, hours? It, it, 
It was actually, yeah, what it was is a, um, in, in historical terms, it's known as a hot cop. And uh, um, what happened was, is before the labor laws came in, you ran a 12-hour shift, um, two shifts a day. Um, so what would happen is the miners that would wake up to go on shift, um, they would take off, go on shift. By the time the guys came up that were getting off shift, um, you actually got to hop into a warm bed um, that somebody just left. Um, and that, you know, that's why it was called the hot cot. So, um, and then the labor laws changed and it changed into um, eight hour shifts and things like that for safety reasons and, and, and that type of thing. For a, a small town of 500 people, y'all do a lot of hosting. I love that you have the, um, the art walk each month. So that's another reason for people to get to yep. come up and, and uh, how many artists are in the area? That's kind of known for their oh, artists. Yes. There, there's a ton of artists in town. Um, I couldn't tell you the exact numbers, but you know, that was basically how everything was uh, established um, in Jerome back in the sixties and things like that. A lot of artists came into Jerome. Um, a lot of the artists that were residing in Jerome in the, in the 70s and, and into the 80s and things like that were actually um, being displayed on Gallery Road down in, in Scottsdale on, on Fifth Ave. So, um, um, you know, that's kind of that's the kind of uniqueness of Jerome that we have. You know, we have artists, we have um, musicians, we have just all sorts of people that and it's a kind of like a small little melting pot. So. Vice Mayor Jay Kinsella, I keep stumbling on your name because I, it's, I, I'm reading it as Jay Kinsella, but my mind keeps trying to say Ray Kinsella as the father of a boy who just loves baseball and watches Field of Dreams regularly. That's Kevin Costner's character name in that movie is Ray Kinsella. Yes. Is, and you're from We're South actually, Dakota. That's in um, Iowa. Is that a, a real family name? Uh, Kinsella is actually a, a, a real family name. Um, you know, what you're referring to is, like you said, Field of Dreams. It's a great movie and things like that. It was actually written by a gentleman by the name of W.P. Kinsella out of Canada. Um, and our family is actually related to that family. So um, it's uh, I, when I was uh, told that I should probably go see the movie Field of Dreams when it came out. It was pretty astonishing that as I'm sitting there eating my popcorn and having my <laughs> Pepsi, and uh, um, all of a sudden they start talking about, you know, an imaginary family um, kind of based on um, the shirt tail uh, family members of, of my family. So um, it, it was pretty unique. Well, we appreciate you getting up and spending your Saturday morning with us here at Rosie on the House to educate and entertain our listening audience about the town of Jerome, Arizona, one of the historic treasures of our great state. Let me add something to the conversation. When you're driving up 89A to Jerome and you pass the old school on the left, on the right, just before the curve, there is a cage. And inside the cage is a yellow truck. I've passed by it a gazillion times, and it's been bugging me. What's the story behind what it? What is the story? It, what is the story? Well, he finally tells me the owner lives in Jerome. It's a Dodge 52 or 53 Suburban, and it's nicknamed the Yellow Banana. Apparently, that truck was used up until the point the brakes went out, and the uh, owner put it into that cage. <laughs> but Jay tells me it's one of the most photographed subjects in Arizona. 
people will see it stop just to take a picture of it. And I think I'm sure Arizona Highways and Robert Yeah, Steve, I was thinking the same thing. Know, what a, they what know an oddity. The yeah. yellow banana. The yellow banana. It's Rosie on the House. The Arizona Hour continues as we're looking back at people and places we visited associated with our Arizona staycations. And we found out that Frommer's Travel Guide gave Bisbee, Arizona, one of the best places in the world to visit. So we had to find out more, and we talked with Jennifer Lurie about it. Yeah, well, I think this came about because I attended a media mission in L.A., and that's where Um, other destination marketing organizations come together to meet with media to talk about their destinations and to kind of pitch stories and just to educate them on a potential article or just something to write about. And at that specific event, uh, Jason, Jason Cochran, who's the editor-in-chief of Commerce, and um, I went around, shook hands and met people, and Jason was one of them. Uh, It was probably about a month or two ago, I got a call from the Arizona Office of Tourism and they said, hey, heads up, um, something great is going to be announced soon, um, and it's about Bisbee, and you've won something, and it's Frommers. So I thought, oh, great, excellent. And here I thought, well, maybe it's another um, award just with the, within the U.S. And when the official press release, press release came out from Frommers, it included us as on a worldwide list. So that has been very exciting. <laughs> you know, if you go, listeners, if you go to Frommers.com, you can see – what kind of places Bisbee won with? And there was only three in the United States, right, Jennifer? Yeah. And that was Correct. San Antonio, New Orleans, and Bisbee. All on I-10. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, you must have been a, done a yeah. great job talking them up because if you scroll through these winners, we have winners in India. We have um, Germany, Hamburg, Germany, Faroe Islands. We have Juneau, Alaska. <laughs> the Mekong River, the Caribbean, and, you know, if you keep scrolling through, and Bisbee. So, how, <laughs> so what, did you, what did you tell them that enticed them to think that Bisbee should be on this grand list? I don't know, but you know what? They use the word genuine when they talked mm. about it, and maybe that's part of it, because here I feel like there's not a facade. It's not a show. We all live here. We work here. There's beautiful historic elements, but we've got modern businesses in it, and everyone, I suppose is very genuine here. So I think the way I was pitching it to him, you know, we're not a destination that has spas and fancy golf courses. We've got an amazing golf course, which is the first one in Arizona. So things like that maybe stuck out. And I hope so, because that's what we truly are. You know, we're at Bohemian Spirit. Um, we still get talked about as being a hippie town. Maybe, maybe not. You know, there were some hippies that came to um, hold on to the town in the 70s when the mines closed. But I think generally we're more of a bohemian spirit. There's a lot of counterculturists here and people that like to do things their own way. So I think that makes it kind of special here. And I think that's what Jason got from um, from talking to him. And you, you mentioned to me also it's a hidden gem. So that's, that's kind of yeah. one of the criteria. They're looking for kind of hidden gems. Yeah, and I think that since we're 45 minutes off the I-10, we're not a pass-through town. You have to decide to come to Bisbee. And I think from that we become a little bit more hidden than other destinations um, and small, but nestled in the Mule Mountains, you know, with that beautiful climate kept us on the radar for them as well. Well, why don't you let people who haven't been to Bisbee know what, what they would come to see then? If there's, you know, if it's not a spa destination, what, what are they coming for? Yeah, when you drive into Bisbee, you come through this Mule um, 
pass, the little tunnel, and when you, it spits you out, you see all these old miner shacks. So from the turn of the century, houses stacked in the hills. So right away, it's charming just before you even set foot on any of the roads. And um, so seeing that, it looks charming, looks like a little snow globe village, kind of without the snow. We get snow once in a while. And when you're in the old historic part of town, um, there's remnants of the mining equipment left, and there's museums. But everywhere there's some inspirations, whether you like to photograph um, architecture or artwork. Um, there's art on art murals on the walls, um, really cute mom-and-pop shops, you know, things that you don't really recognize. So I think it's refreshing when you come to Bisbee. It's not the same chain stores, um, you know, specialty things. We've got really good food, and sometimes that's not so synonymous with a small town. But they work with a lot of the local farmers around to get fresh produce and meats and um, it's, it's just special. Everyone here kind of has a creative vibe, I say, whether they're musicians also or they're artists within their food industry or they, they dance or they perform and uh, paint. So you see that all around. I think that's what makes it um, you know, different from other, other places. And how about places to stay? Yeah. So we've got a traditional bed and breakfast. There's hotels. Um, they're all in historic buildings, but some have had a more of a modern um, uh, redone decor inside, um, but they're everything from, you know, king size beds to uh, little apartment suites so you can have a little kitchen. You can go to the farmer's market, get fresh food, come back and cook it yourself or go out to one of our dinners. Um, and there's motor courts, there's um, a vintage trailer court. So there's quite the gamut of different places to stay in Bisbee. And when walking Bisbee, there are a lot of stairs, aren't there? Walk, there are. We're known yeah. for, um, there's an event called the Stair Climb. It happens once a year, but our stairs are always open, and we call them the heritage stairs. So before um, I mean, they were made out of concrete, they were just ladders that were laid across the dirt, and they would had mules that would help people bring up their goods and their water to their houses. Um, and then uh, the WPA came in um, during the Depression, and they put in the concrete stairs. And there's sprinkled all throughout the entire um, historic area, so it goes from the business district on up to the residential area. So you can take a few stairs. Some might be 161 on one staircase, 80 on another, but they all kind of intertwine together. So we call it our urban hiking. Yeah, I like that. But you can still get around town if you're not capable of climbing stairs or that's not your thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Jennifer, yeah, thank you for joining absolutely. us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, come see us down in Bisbee. Now, for the Rosie on the House Arizona staycation from Sanderson Ford, we've picked our January winner. They're on their way to Yuma to stay at the Shiloh Inns. But you can register for our February staycation to Tubac. You'll stay at the Tubac Golf Resort and Spa. It's really nice. Register at rosieonthehouse.com now.